Thanks, Fred, for bringing that football reference to begin the day in depression. And all I can say is uh, Ole Miss's um, prospects are no worse than the University of Southern California right here. So, uh, yeah, one of my colleagues a while back, we were talking football, and uh, one of my younger colleagues in the course of the conversation looks at me, and he said, where are you from? I said, USC, you know, University of Southern California. He says, uh, they used to be good ones, didn't they? Totally innocently, and I'm going, oh man, I'm truly irrelevant at this point, football-wise. Well guys, this morning we're gonna be looking at Psalm 25, so if you take your Bible and uh, look at that, Psalm 25. <clears throat> yeah, while you're turning there, I, I had an interesting thing happen earlier this week. Um, I was in my office on Monday, and I got one of these kind of um, one-off, random-looking emails. And so I'm thinking, you know, this could be fishing or something, but I'll take a, take a look. And it turned out to be from a guy who was a student at, the at Arizona State University, um, where my wife and I were serving on the staff of a campus ministry. And I figured it out. It must have been 40 years ago. Unbelievable. And this guy, we hadn't seen during all that time, and he just, he, for some reason, he was thinking about us and uh, tracked us down and wrote a, a lovely little note. Um, but in the course of it, and just retracing some things that, from the past, he said, one of the things I remember about us, he and I and others, uh, was that you were teaching us this Bible study about the life of David. And he, he mentioned some specifics. And, and I'm thinking, man, this dude's got a great memory. Um, I don't know how he pulled that one out. But then I realized, as I'm talking to him, I have this in front of me. And so uh, I wrote him a note back and said, you're not going to believe this, but um, when I got your note, I was studying the life of David. <laughs> and uh, we're going we're gonna to be talking about it together as men this week. And that brought two thoughts to mind. Number one, you're getting old, Stokey, that's for sure. And number two, I'm doing the same thing I was doing 40 years ago. I don't know if that's good or something else, but uh, I, it's, it was kind of a wake-up call and a delightful one to me to know that um, the truth is the same over time with students at Arizona State, with men in Memphis, and so here we are today, and uh, we've got Psalm 25 today. Just a couple words about this before we get into it. Um, this, as you notice at the top of the psalm, is a psalm of David. It doesn't seem to be related to any particular event or time in David's life. Uh, there's no reference like that. Um, in fact, James Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce, a, a former great Presbyterian pastor, uh, who wrote some wonderful commentaries on scripture, just mentioned about this passage that it is great in its calm, quiet maturity. Um, this isn't one of these explosive, exciting passages that, that digs through a lot of action. Um, it's not one of these pathos-filled passages like the one that Todd taught us last week, Psalm 23. Some psalms are like that. This seems to be a psalm of a man, maybe later in life, who's just looking back 
and uh, with calm, quiet maturity, um, reflecting on what is really worth trusting in life. And so it's, it's really almost a thoughtful prayer um, of a man that's uh, later in life as he looks back. So um, let's look together at the t- psalm. Let's read it, and uh, we'll go from there. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we open this psalm today, and as David once again teaches us, we pray with him that you would make make us know your ways and teach us your paths and lead us in your truth and teach us today. We wait for you. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Well, what we're going to do today, uh, rather than go verse by verse as we normally do, is this. Um, The psalm itself was written in an interesting form. It was written as an acrostic, which means that every verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet straight through. It's it's a lovely poetic um, device, and it's been used several times in the psalms. But uh, what it does is it doesn't give us a nice, neat little outline unless, of course, somebody is reading from your Hebrew Bible this morning. That might be helpful. But uh, doubting that, we're going to just go at it a little bit differently because 
Um, the thoughts don't necessarily uh, follow the letters of the Hebrew alphabet as they are written. So we're, what we're going to do is this. If you've been using our uh, study resource by Derek Kidner, um, what he does here is to take four big thoughts that David um, kind of worked through throughout this psalm and uh, just talks about them. And I, I just like that approach. So that's what we'll do. We're going to take four large thought, thoughts that we see developed throughout the psalm. Um, and that will be pretty much the way we go at this. Before we do that, I've given you on your outline there um, two large ideas, two big picture statements that David gives right at the beginning of the psalm to kind of frame the way that we think about his teaching here. So if you look at your outline, they're, they're very simple. In verse 1, David says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That's important. That's a very important distinction as he um, teaches us throughout this psalm. And the statement I want to uh, leave with you is that the issues of life are spiritual. That is, they have to do with your soul, our souls. They're not superficial issues. The, the main central issues of life are ones that go as deeply as they can go into who we are as people. They're issues of the soul. The issues of life are spiritual. Um, you know, one way to think about this is that when we go to our medical professional or our dentist, um, they are used to having somebody come and sit down, and the question is normally something like, uh, so tell me why you're here. What, what are you experiencing? And then out we come with our own kind of self-diagnosis, and we tell them what we think is wrong with us. Well, I've had a I'm having a pain with this, and my tooth hurts, and whatever. And then the real deal starts to happen as those medical professionals begin to exercise their skill and their training and their experience, not by just treating our symptoms, but by trying to discover the correct diagnosis of the underlying disease. We're, we're often mistaken in what we think our real issue is. But uh, in, in this illustration of a medical professional, they're there to help us dig deep and find out what the real disease is all about. And um, what I'm saying is this, that we um, are used to going at superficial issues in our lives and thinking those are our problems. And so we think that uh, my problems are all financial. Well, they may be partly financial especially after the week we've had in the markets this week, I'm sure. But that's not your main problem. Um, people say, well, you know, our, our real problems are political. We've got to get things right in Washington. You know, we've heard a lot of that this week. And so the elections have come and gone. A week from now, you think our problems are going to be solved? No, because they're not the main issues of our lives. They're important, but they're not ultimate. Um, People come and they want to, there's all kinds of stuff that people want to raise as what they think to be the main issues of life. And what the Bible's going to tell us is, no, the primary issues of life are spiritual. They are speaking to your soul, not superficial stuff. Um, second statement. Um, it comes in verse 2, and David makes the statement, Oh my God, I in you I trust. I trust in you. 
And he says it right at the top of the thing because he's got all kinds of issues in this psalm. But he says right from the beginning, beginning of the psalm, oh my God, I'm trusting in you. Um, and my question to you as we walk through this and then as we conclude is going to be, so in what or in whom is your ultimate trust? If we had to just sit down and chat today, um, I bet I could hear something of what your ultimate trust is by the way that you talk about the issues of life. And so the question, just as we begin here, is, hey, where or in whom is your ultimate trust today as we begin thinking about these things together? So um, what we're really dealing with are the issues of the human heart. And the human heart does this. It takes good things, normally good things, not immoral or sinful things necessarily, stuff like a successful career, or a, um, a fa happy family life, or love, or material possessions, which things in themselves are not in any way sinful. But our hearts take those things and make them ultimate things. And um, we deify them, we trust in them, we give them significance, they give us security and fulfillment until we find out that they're not worthy of our trust. And so anything in our lives that we seek to give our trust to that only God can give us are going to be empty. They're going to be idols, actually. And so these are important questions and large idea statements that I want us to be just having in front of us as we walk through this, okay? Oh, my God. In you I trust. And what does that look like? What's that look like in our lives together? So we're going to look at four things, and if, if you look at your outline, it's just these. His enemies, his sin, guidance, and waiting and trusting on God. Okay? Just those four things. Um, so let's talk first about his enemies. David, from a young boy, remember the first time we sort of meet David? Uh, in the field, he is uh, facing Goliath. And uh, you know the story. And as he, he is the one who defeats Goliath, he immediately becomes the number one enemy of all the Philistine tribes and their armies. And basically, they remained his enemies the rest of his life for the next 50 years. It wasn't over. Um, he was hunted down, he was betrayed. He was undermined from all directions. He was a fugitive for life. The enemies were always after him. And um, not only them, but his own military staff turned on him. Uh, some of his own politicians turned on him. His own sons turned on him. I mean, he had literally enemies all around his entire life. And um, so his statement beginning in verse 2. Let's, let's just look at it. He says, In you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. In verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Uh, verse 2 is an interesting verse. Let me, do not let me be put to shame. And it's, not, it, it's more of a plea uh, I think, than a, uh, anything else. It's, a it's actually a statement of trust. And he says, God, I'm trusting in you. 
And if something ever happens where I look like I'm not trusting you anymore, he says, don't let me be put to shame. Don't let your name be dishonored by what I do. I want to trust you. And don't let anything I do dishonor you. Don't let your name um, be smirched. And then in verse 3, he says, those whose total trust is in him will never be let down. Now, that's, that's a good thing to know in, in the face of enemies who are mortal enemy, enemies and trying to kill you. But it's good for us to know as we walk through the days of our lives that nobody who waits for the Lord shall be put to shame. The ones who will be put to shame, he says, are the ones who are wantonly treacherous. In other words, the enemies of God. And then he goes and mentions the, these enemies once again at the very end of the chapter. They're, they're always just below the surface in David's mind. And so if you look at verse 19, he mentions them again. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. He says, God, you know there are a lot of them out there. They're all over the place. And they hate my guts. <laughs> he says, Consider with what violent hatred they hate me. This wasn't just some political disagreement. They wanted him dead. And they wanted him dead for 50 years. Um, and then verse 20. Oh, guard my soul. Remember, the issues of our lives are about our soul. He says, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. It's almost as if he's reminding himself where his confidence, his trust is. So he talks about his enemies. Now, we say, well, okay, that's great in um, David's day, but we're not, we're not going to go off today to a shooting war, hopefully, where you work, where you live. Um, but our enemies today, brothers, are just as real, more real, because they're spiritual enemies. I've given you two verses there in First Peter. First Peter 5.8 says that we have a lethal enemy who the Bible names the destroyer. This enemy hates God, he hates his son, and he hates you because you're a follower of his. And he would love to take us down. He would love to make a mess of our lives. Um, the verse there talks about the devil prowling about, seeing who he might devour. He'd love to eat your life up for breakfast, as it were. Um, now, it's important for us to know that we are spiritually secure in Christ. Those who place their trust in Christ are spiritually secure. That's not the question. The devil, meanwhile, would love to do as much damage as he, he can in our lives to take us down in the process. And you know what? It happens happens in the church, happens all over the place in the lives of Christians, you know? He'd love to, to mess our lives up with compromise, with issues of immorality, addictions, all kinds of stuff. We're not going to lose our salvation over any of that kind of stuff, but the devil is going to take some big bloody bites out of our lives and immobilize us, okay? Our, our, our warfare is for real. It's spiritual. And that second um, reference I give you there in 1 
in Peter, it should be 1 Peter 2.11, not 2 Peter 2.11. And that's where uh, the scripture there talks about passions that come to us and war against our, once again, souls. Every day there are passions just in the everydayness of life that war against your soul and my soul. War. Okay? So we're in some warfare here. And we stand with David in finding our confidence against our spiritual enemies in the God of David. Okay. So he, he talks about his enemies. And then he moves to another issue there in your outline. He begins to think and reflect on his own sin, which is really interesting. You know that... At this point, God has done such a work in the life of David that there are some things that are never far from his thinking, and his sin is one of them. It's not that he hasn't been forgiven, but he just, he's fully aware of his fallenness, and that's what we see here. He's constantly aware of his own sin and of God's mercy. And again, the issues of our lives are spiritual. David knew that his primary disease, in, back in that metaphor, as it were, the thing that's really his sickness, his illness, is his sin. And so look at verse 6. He says, two, these two verses are juxtaposed in a, in a really great way. He says, Lord, remember your mercy and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. You know, this, this is such a beautiful verse, and this is one of those times where our English translations don't always really catch the beauty of, of the language here. It, it might be something more like, Lord, remember your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, plural. And Spurgeon says those two phrases are like two gems. Lord, remember your tender mercies to me. Remember your many loving kindnesses to me and your steadfast love for they have been of really the term is they're from eternity. They're as old as you. No age. Eternal. So remember your mercy, your tender mercies, O Lord. And then he says, and don't remember, (laughs) don't remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. So remember your mercy when you see me. And please don't remember the sins of my youth. Um, you know, I, in reading that second verse there, verse 7, I was thinking about watching, and perhaps you did too, the recent um, hearings uh, for our Supreme Court justice. And that was just gut-wrenching to watch and to listen and to see. And... Uh, I was thinking that um, what would it be like? I, I, I was just squirming as we were watching when the FBI was authorized to fully use its entire resources to investigate the life of Judge Kavanaugh and Christine Ford all the way back to when they were teenagers and forward. And I'm going, ooh. What if the FBI was going to investigate Stokey all the way back to his teenage years and everything since? 
Uh, man, I'll tell you what, I, I had a, a stomachache watching that thing because I was thinking, I'm sure glad that's not me. Did anybody else have that same feeling? Yeah. Amen. All right, good. You're tracking. Whoa. And to do it in a public venue, it's just, it, it's horrific, actually. But David says, look, Lord, remember your tender mercies to me, which are from eternity. He wanted not only to be forgiven, but he wanted his sin to be forgotten. He says, remember not the sins of your youth, my youth. Um, question, what does God do with repented for and forgiven sin? What happens to our sins? David tells us, God doesn't remember them. There's a little interesting little um, trivia point. Is there anything that God doesn't know? Yeah, he doesn't remember our covered sins in Christ. It's beautiful. Um, those verses that I've given you there in your outline help with that. Um, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, or David's experience on this. God took him and all the sin that he carried with him and all the sin that you and I carry with us. And having repented them, they're covered. They're removed. But, I mean, just that first uh, reference there in, verse, in chapter 32. Verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Gone. This is great. I don't know. I, I am probably the dumbest person in this room in relation to all things tech, okay, and computer and everything else. I'm a complete moron, I admit it. One thing I do know how to do, though, and I love to do it, is when you go on the tools on your computer there, and uh, you can scroll down, and it says, um, delete. And so you push it, and it says, little script, are you sure you want to permanently delete this item? And I'm going, yeah, man, I can't wait. <laughs> and the thing goes, boop, it's gone. I love that. Permanently delete. Oop. Hey, that's what God does with our sin. As we stand under the blood of Jesus, he, he hits the delete button. Oop. And when he sees Stokey, he doesn't see the mess of my life that has been me ever since my teenage years up to now. Always. He sees me covered with the blood of Jesus. Okay, And that's what David, he knows that. But he pleads for that. Oh, Lord, remember your tender mercies and don't remember my sins. Delete. And he does. He says, and then look down at verse 11. He, he mentions it again. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Uh, he, he's always just, a, and that little verse is kind of out of context for everything that, else that he's talking about. He just drops right in there and he says, yeah. My sin, my sin was real, and it affected my life. And, and he says, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And God did pardon him. And David, what we see here is David is still in a process of repentance. And you go, hey, didn't that, didn't that happen the first time he repented and the delete button was pushed? Yes. But, you know, the reality is we live a life of constant repentance. It never stops. 
And the reason for that is that we're learning how to walk with Jesus as his followers. And as we're walking along the road, we're going to see stuff in our lives that probably shouldn't be there, needs to be changed. And we can't change it. So we repent again. And the further down the road we, re- we walk, the more we're repenting. And that's where David finds himself here. He's still repenting. Repentance is, is continual. It's continually uh, learning what it means to follow Jesus because he's the king. And we, we adjust our paths and our ways to him as we go. Okay, his enemies, his own sin, and God's mercy. The third thing he, he uh, talks and reminds us about is guidance, okay? It's a, kind of a large heading. Let me, let me put it this way. David, in this psalm and many, many others, constantly uses the metaphors, and you saw it as we read, of ways and paths. It's a metaphor for the way that we walk through life, literally. Um, David was writing in about 1,000 B.C., and most of the travel at that point was done by foot, on foot. And... Uh, what they traveled over in terms of ways and paths were not very sophisticated at all. They were more like trails, goat tracks. Um, There were dirt for the most part. There were rocks. There were forests all around. They were, you know, completely undeveloped. Um, Seldom a level piece of ground anywhere. You know what um, the land of Palestine looks like from pictures. Maybe you've been there. It's really rocky and hilly, and there's a lot of up and down. So walking down paths was an everyday challenge for people. And uh, it, it was not only those things, but we see at other places in Scripture, it was a notorious place for ambushes and for crime because of the, the unstable nature of these trails. And so you needed to be careful about which trail, which path, which way you were taken just for safety's sake alone. And so David starts talking about guidance about the paths and the ways that we take in our lives, okay? Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, make, no, uh, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Show me, show me the paths I need to take, Lord, as I walk my way through life. Um. Verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all day long. So he says, show me the right ways. Show me your paths. There probably weren't a lot of road signs either, and it would have been easy to get off the track. He says, keep me on your path, Lord. And in verse 5, he says, your path is actually the path of truth. So if there's a road sign that you could put on God's path, it would say, Truth. He says, lead me on, on the truth path, God. And then, uh, starting in verse 8 again, he talks about these ways again. He says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way, God's way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant. 
It says, all of the Lord's paths are steadfast. So what you want to be doing, what I want to be doing on a daily basis in my life as I walk through the paths and the issues of my life is to say, Lord, show me that path that says truth on it. Let me be walking in your ways because your ways are steadfast love and faithfulness. And so here's the question. So how, does it, how do you know? How do you know which path to take? That's a logical question. How, where are these paths? They don't have signs. They're not actual paths. They're the paths of my heart, my soul, my life. How does he guide us in his way? And the, the answer is verse 5 there. For you are the God of my salvation. Teach me in your truth. Okay? How does he teach us in his truth? Guys. Okay? You go to worship. He's going to teach you in his truth. You, you go to other ministry activities that you're involved in. He's going to teach you in his truth. You come to Amen Bible study. Well done. He's teaching you in his truth. And what he wants you to know is that the ways, the paths of God are found right here. Just follow the map. Okay? It's not complicated. Your truth. He says uh, in verse 12, here's one of the most lovely verses, I think. Uh, look, just look quickly at verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way he should choose. Um, now, Tim Keller brings up an interesting uh, point here, as he often does. Um, what about times in our lives when we've got issues or questions or decisions or, you know, we're just blank on what to do next or which way to go, and the Bible doesn't speak to them specifically? I don't know if you've noticed, that, but the Bible doesn't speak very specifically about a lot of the issues of our lives. What it does is it gives us large truth and a direction to follow, okay? And so Keller says, well, what about those times in my life when I don't know what's right? I just don't know which, which way to go here. I don't know which decision would be the one that God would want me to make. Here's what Keller says. This is great. He guides us by being so immersed in God's written word that we're trained to choose rightly even in cases where the Bible doesn't speak directly, okay? The idea is the more of God's ways and paths and the more about who God is in our souls, when it comes to making decisions about which way to go, and the Bible doesn't talk about it, he says, being immersed in God's written word, we're trained to choose rightly. He's actually in the process of showing you even in cases where the Bible doesn't speak directly. We know enough about God. We're learning enough about God himself um, to do what is consistent with his word and his character in a situation where the Bible doesn't speak. Okay? It, it's such a lovely and a deep um, function of God's spirit in our lives. Just a couple of, of uh, quick notes. The scripture tells us that he leads us by steps. And there's some references there for you. He leads us by steps, one step at a time, just like your little child learning to walk. That's how God leads us. 
Isn't it great that when we become followers of Christ, um, part of our, our entering into the family of God is not that he gives us some big map, you know, one of these, like a paper map, and it unfolds and it says, well, Stokey, here's the map of your life, and let me just show you all the stuff that's, that I'm going to be doing, says God. And you look at it, and you go, hey, this looks pretty good. There's some good stuff here. And then you look a little closer, and you go, I don't think so. I don't want that. That's going to happen to me? <coughs> Point is this. No, God leads you step by step by step. He doesn't lay out a map for you and say, okay, here's the way we're going to go. He just wants us looking to him a step at a time to trust him. That's a, that's a wonderful gift uh, of God that he hasn't laid out a, a big old map of our lives in detail in advance. Um, and then there's, a, there's an enigmatic verse there in verse 14 that uh, I've always, I've looked at every commentary that I read on this chapter and nobody gets clear on it, okay? It's really interesting. It's, it's very enigmatic, but let's look at it. Verse 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. I can't explain what that's saying. But it's got something to do with intimacy. The word translated there is friendship in our English Bibles. Sometimes uh, the word is translated from the Hebrew, the secret of the Lord, or the Lord confides in. There's, there's something that the Lord communicates to those who fear him, rooted in his covenant fellowship and relationship with us that can't even be described. That's my best shot at it. And that is so cool. You know, there's something about our relationship to God that is, it goes beyond even our being able to articulate it in terms of his fellowship and his leading in our lives. It's wonderful. You know, there's, when we talk about ways and paths and, and uh, directions, it's no Accident, I do not believe that in John 14, Jesus says, I am what? The way. <laughs> Thomas says, hey, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. <laughs> God uh, is, is teaching us there at that, at that wonderful point in the life of Christ that he is the way to God. I am the way. And he is the way because he is the truth of God. And he is the life of God. Incarnate. So what he said is, don't worry about the map. Just follow me and keep following me. Wonderful stuff. Okay. Enemies, sin, guidance, last statement has to do with Waiting and trusting. They're on your outline. Waiting and trusting. He uses these terms three times in this psalm. In verse 3, he says, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Again in verse 5, Lead me in your truth, teach me, at the end of the verse, for I wait for you all the day long. And then down in verse 21, 
May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Now, when we hear, hear that word wait, it's always a negative. All right? We're way too hyper and way too right now about our lives. And so we think about tr waiting in traffic or waiting uh, in uh, airports. Yeah. Drives you nuts. Waiting in stores, waiting for some customer service dude to actually serve you, you know? Waiting for everything related to the government. Wait, 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 wait. We wait all the time and we hate it. So somehow this is a virtue to be waiting for God. And the fact is, David said, yeah, wait for the Lord. He's not speaking of the kind of waiting that we think of. Um, this kind of waiting for the Lord has a meaningful purpose in our lives. Okay? And there need to be times, there need to be actually regular times in our lives where we just step back and disengage and allow the Lord to speak to us. Um, David, as he writes, is a guy who made a mess of mistakes in his life. All kinds of them. Big ones. Okay? And most of them were made when he made decisions or moves in panic or in impulse or in fear. You know, when you're panicky and fearful and impulsive, you're not making good decisions. That's the way David did all, almost everything. Um, out of lust, out of impatience, out of pride, all kinds of stuff. And God says, hey, wait a minute. How about you wait for me? If you've got a big thing on your mind and, and something coming in your life, why don't you just wait? And what he's saying is, hey, my timing is a little different than yours, Stokey. I'm not working exactly in the point of time that you're looking, me to do, looking for me to do things. God is not in a hurry because he exists outside of the framework of time and space. He's not sitting here looking at his watch going, well, you know, it's three minutes before I do something in Stokey's life. You know? God's timing is all different than the way that we think because he's living in, in the framework of eternity, not our little watches. He's always working on his, uh, in the lives of his people in history, always at work. And so David's lesson is, look, there are times when you just need to be intentional about what it means to wait on the Lord. Trust him. Uh, slow down. Listen. When was the last time in your life when you just sat down with your Bible and said, Lord, just speak to me. I got no agenda here. I'm not going to tell you all the stuff I need. Just talk to me. Wait on the Lord. Um, be quiet. Stop talking. Get off your stinking devices and just be quiet and wait on the Lord. It's an important thing. Let the God who sees eternity move you to the next step, but give him the, the opportunity and the time and the space in your life. This waiting for God, by the way, is not some passive thing. It's not just me sitting around, you know, what are you doing? I'm waiting for God. I'm just waiting, you know. It's not that sort of ridiculous, um, passive, inert waiting. 
When, when David talks about waiting for the Lord, the sense of the words actually are that it's an eager waiting um, and it's expectant waiting for God. It's like this. It's, it's the kind of waiting that you might see in a military unit that's on high alert, okay, and just waiting for the order. So the guys are all suited up. They have their weapons. They have everything going. The, the engines on the jets are fired up, and it's sitting on the runway, and they're waiting for the order. It's that kind of waiting. Waiting on the Lord is an eager waiting. It's an expectant waiting. It's, God, you're going to do something, and you just tell me when. I was, as I was thinking about this, I looked down and saw my dog at his place next to my feet on the floor. And this dog, I, we, we have a lab, and uh, this dog had a look on his face that I thought, it's, that's what this is talking about. It's like he's looking at, and I'm going, man, what are you looking at all the time? He's looking, and he's staring. And what he's saying is, hey, I'm ready. Whatever you want to do, you just tell me. Let's go. I'm ready. And he's just looking. Hey, if a dog knows that kind of reality, why can't we know that kind of reality in relation to the God of the universe? God, I'm ready. Here I am. Just tell me which way you want me to go. And let's go do it. Fantastic. He finishes the passage with verse 22, and this is a lovely benediction. Redeem Israel, O God, out of his troubles. The thing that's unique about that verse is throughout the entire passage, he's been speaking in the first person. Me, 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 God. Be at work in my soul, in my life. Show me. And in the last verse, what he does is he says, everything I've just prayed for me, O Lord, do for all of your people. All of your people, Israel. All of your uh, people throughout history. It's a call for God to finally, oh Lord, bring it to pass. Finally redeem his people and bring it to completion. The price of redemption was paid. And David says, hey, let's bring it to a completion and let's be with you personally, literally, spiritually, and every other way as we go into your kingdom. Redeem your people, oh Lord. Lovely. So as we conclude, I ask the same question. What is operating in, the, operating in the place of Jesus Christ as your real functional trust? Anything? If there is anything, you're functioning with a trust in an empty box. There's nothing there. Because the only trust that is worthy of your full trust is the one that secures our souls, the trust in God himself and the work of his son. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, uh, this is a set of lessons that we don't learn easily and we certainly don't learn quickly. And we are, we are learners. And we cry out to you with David that you would teach us your ways. Teach us your paths. Remember uh, not the sins of our youth and draw us close to you. Father, just walk with us right down the paths of this day in everything that we're doing and keep our eyes on you. 
and on Jesus. For Christ's sake today, amen.